0: Well, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Matthew, going to the gospel of Matthew and turning there to chapter 6, so Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, and taking a look at the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. This Jesus gives in the context of the Sermon on the Mount as he teaches the people of God concerning the kingdom of God and what does kingdom living look like. And he tells them that when you pray, pray then like this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that more than anything that your name might be hallowed this morning, as we continue to worship you, and now through the worship of your word, receive all the glory and honor that is due to your person, to your work, to your name, And God, teach us and encourage us and help us to draw near before you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this will be our last sermon on the series of the topic of prayer. And so we've talked about the great challenge of prayer, how challenging it is to go to the Lord in prayer, as easy as it sometimes is to just simply open your mouth and speak to the Lord, and yet there are oftentimes distractions that come when we are going to the Lord in prayer, that there are our own besetting sins, that we have to continually confront, that we have to continually confess before the Lord. There are sometimes disruptions, there are sometimes we forget what we've learned in the Word. We've talked about that what also brings about a or adds to the challenge of prayer is our own weaknesses that sometimes we are just forgetful of the things that we have learned in Scriptures, that sometimes we just do not know what to pray for as we ought. Sometimes there is an irreverence in us before we go before the Lord, and hence why God has given to us His Spirit to intercede for us, with these groanings too deep for words, to intercede for us according to the will of God. And so praise the Lord that we have always with us one who is praying for us, wherever we are and wherever we're going, and whatever it is that we're doing. And now we have this prayer that Jesus gives to us in the Word of God. It is not intended to be something that we repeat over and over again, sort of like a mantra, though it is, I think it is, it can be encouraging, or I think Jesus encourages the church to pray this prayer. I mean, it is his prayer. And he expects the church to pray together. Hence, it begins by saying, Our Father in heaven. But more than anything, I think the prayer is intended to give us sort of a template so that when we do not know what to pray for, consider, what, consider the content of this prayer and let that direct your prayers unto the Lord. This prayer sits in a context that has to deal with sincerity. Before this, Jesus deals with the fact of giving. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So, in other words, let your giving be in secret. When it comes to prayer, go to your closet, pray to the Lord in secret. And after this Lord's Prayer, we have the topic of fasting, where Jesus says, don't fast and look to draw the attention of others so they may see your good works that they may see your piety instead be sincere go to the lord in private and fast in private you don't need to show it off to the entire world and so it is in that context that the lord's prayer sits there are often times when we have a tendency or even a temptation to to cover up ourselves whether it's covering up our sins to mask our weaknesses, to stitch together a a costume and present something to others or even to the Lord that may not actually be reality. Even though we know the words of Hebrews 4.13 that says that all are exposed before the Lord and that nothing is hidden from His sight, yet there are times where we do try to put on a mask for various different reasons. And we'll talk more, a little bit more about this sincerity later on towards the end of the sermon. But to begin with, the sermon, or the, rather the prayer itself, is broken up into at least four different ways. First, you have the preface, and then you have the petitions concerning God, and then you have the petitions concerning ourselves, and then you have a conclusion. So we'll actually leave the preface to the very end, so we'll begin with our first heading, which is Petitions Concerning God. The first petition concerning the Lord is, Hallowed be your name. So that concerns the glory of God. And so when we pray, such as we did a moment ago, when we say, Hallowed be your name, what does that mean? What, are we, what is our desire? What are we communicating there? And what we're saying is, make your name holy. Sanctify your name. Now that we know the Lord is already holy, the Lord is already glory, glorious, the Lord is already sanctified, set apart. There is no other God like our God. And so when we pray, God, hallow your name, sanctify it, glorify it. What we are praying for is that God, not only would you be glorified in the life of your church, not only in my own personal life, but that your name might be hallowed in the entire world. We want God to be glorified by all men everywhere. The scriptures show a great concern for the fame of God's name. So for example, in Deuteronomy 4, verse 34, the Lord says there, Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation, by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, And by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Certainly God had a great concern for his people who were groaning, and whose groaning were heard in the ears of God. And so God came down and delivered them with great signs and wonders. But the Scriptures also make clear that it was also to show His power, and that His name might be proclaimed in all the earth, as it says in Romans. And so that the world might know that, there is, that this is God and that there is no other. So certainly God is concerned with the fame of his own name. He desires to spread his name across all the earth. Acts 4.12 tells us, And there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So it is a concern for who he is and what God has done. So think of a name of a person. whether somebody you know or somebody who's famous for some reason, when somebody mentions the name, certain thoughts come up, either because of something they did, or you think about their character. You might think about what they did, or they didn't do. You might think about their goodness, or you might think about their wickedness, because all these things are attached to a name. So in the same way, when we think of the name of God, right? what is the first thought that comes to mind? The reason why A.W. Tozer once said that the first thought that comes to your mind at the name of God is the most important thing about you. God is concerned with the fame of his own name because with his own name comes his character, and with his character also comes his works. And God's desire is that he might be known across the world and might be glorified. So this, what, is, what, this, what does this mean for us? Why should our prayers verbalize a concern for the hallowing of God's name? Because the priorities of the Father must also be the priorities of His children. The children of God must share in the great concern of the Father. The chief concern of the Father is to spread the fame of God's name as it relates to the gospel. We have to be concerned with the spread of the fame of God's name for the joy of all peoples. Because only when man knows the name of God, know who he is, know what he has done, and know him personally through faith in Jesus Christ, that is what ultimately leads to everlasting and true joy. So we want his name to be proclaimed for the joy of others. This also sets the priorities And when we pray these things, we're saying that first and foremost, we desire for you, O Lord, to be glorified. That that is first. Before we can expect to receive anything from His hand, we must first give Him the glory. And as we pray these things there's certainly an expectation that we live in a manner that is consistent with what we pray for. So what does this look like? What does it look like for you and I to hollow God's name even as we pray for the name of God to be hollowed? It means that we must live in a manner that reflects that God is highest amongst all things. That nothing else is to be treasured or prized above God. That we must live our lives with an eye to please Him first and foremost So, still under this heading of the petitions concerning God, it concerns the glory of God, and then, second, it concerns the supremacy of God. It continues Your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer that acknowledges that not everything in the world is as it should be, but there is a place where everything is as it should be, and that is none other than heaven itself. And so we pray that God's kingdom would come. We set our hearts in harmony with the very heart of John the Apostle in the book of Revelation towards the end, at the very end of the chapter, when he says there, come soon, Lord Jesus. A prayer for the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the spread of the kingdom of heaven is also a prayer for the king to come. Because there is no king, or there is no kingdom without a king. We don't simply pray for the kingdom to come. In turn, we are praying for the kingdom to come because ultimately we want the king to come. We want the king to spread his reign across across the world. That the earth might be made into the image of heaven, that the earth might be conformed to the example of heaven, that the earth might be patterned after the design of heaven that earth itself might become heaven. And as we pray these things, what there is allowed in the saints this holy discontentment. You're sort of allowed to have this permissible discontentment. It's like a, a kid who is Being picked for a team, you have the two team captains and they're each choosing what one they want in the team and then one kid gets chosen on the one he doesn't want to be on because he sees the other team like, no, those are the real players. Like Those are the ones, I mean, he can catch the ball, he can throw the ball, he can run really fast. I want to be on that team because that team is going to win. So in the same way, we're allowed to have sort of this holy discontentment as we pray for God's kingdom to come because we know that we are not going to ultimately be satisfied on this earth because not everything is as it should be, but we long to... Be in the place where everything is as it ought to be, where everything is right. And so we long for this and we want it. We want it to be realized. Even as we pray for it and long for it ourselves, this also requires us to live in a manner that is consistent with our heavenly citizenship. as believers, as those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, you have the passport to heaven. And so that requires for us to live in a manner that's consistent with that passport. Even if it shows, it inevitably will, even if it shows to the rest of the world that we're not like it, and people begin to notice it, it's because we're living in a manner that is consistent, not with this world, but with the one that is to come. So We pray that his kingdom would come, and we pray that his will be done. The scriptures teach about two different wills concerning the Lord. There's the will of command, or the precepts. These are the wills, this is the, the commands that God has given to us. So all of the commands that we read in the scriptures is God's will for us, so then how do you know the will of the Lord? you lower the Scriptures. And you see what His commands are. And that tells you what His will is for your life. But then you also have the sovereign will of the Lord. This is what's fixed. This is the foundation. This is the studs. This is the, the frames to the structure that if you remove any of it, the whole structure comes toppling down. It is this sovereign will that we read of in Ephesians 1.4, for example where it says there, even as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. It is according to the sovereign will of the Lord that you were chosen to be holy and blameless, chosen in Christ for redemption. It is the same sovereign will that Acts 4 speaks of when the apostles talk about the sufferings of Jesus Christ, and these were all supposed to happen as God had predestined to take place. And so when we pray for the will of God to be done, we are recognizing the supremacy of God above all things. So that even as we offer up our prayers before the Lord, this also sets the priorities. We are saying, Lord, these are my, this is my will, these are my petitions, these are my desires. But Your will must come first, so that if the train of our lives is heading on the track and we are, and we are desires of turning right, but the will of the Lord desires and determines that we go left, then our prayer is that God, though I want to go right. Let your will be done, even if it means that I must go left, and to be content and satisfied in doing so. His will comes first, but that also requires that we live according to His revealed will following the Scriptures, looking to the Scriptures, studying the Scriptures, meditating on the Scriptures, praying over the Scriptures and the help of the Holy Spirit so that we might walk in a manner that is consistent with His revealed will in His Word. It's like a master leaving a set of instructions before he goes off on a journey and leaves his stewards to tend to his Business, you must do this. Take care of this. Make sure that this is not neglected in this way. The master is leaving what his will is to be carried out by his stewards. So, in the same way, the Lord has revealed to us his will, so we might know what he desires of us. So, those are the petitions concerning God. Secondly, are the petitions concerning ourselves. In the first petition is daily provision. And this one petition should actually draw our attention to three different things. The first is a recognition of our humble dependence upon the Lord. It starts out by saying, give us, give us this day our daily bread. Everything that we have comes from the hand of the Lord even if you have the hands to be able to work, put your hand to the plow, even if you have the mind to devote yourself to work, to provide an income of food on the table, ultimately that hand that provides for your needs and that mind that provides for your needs comes from the Lord. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about the birds of the heaven, how they have all that they need, and how the lilies of the field are clothed in splendor, and he goes on to say, are you not a more value than they are? Meaning that if God has so richly provided for the birds of the air and even the lilies of the field, then how can we not also trust that God will provide for our needs? We are dependent upon the Lord for all that we need. And the second thing this draws our attention to is a focus on the present. It says, Give us this day our daily bread. It doesn't say, Give us today tomorrow's bread, but give us this day our daily bread. And certainly there's a place for considering tomorrow planning ahead planning for the week ahead planning for the month ahead planning for vacations there is wisdom in those things the bible speaks to those things but at the same time there is a concern in other places in the scriptures and including in this one that we do not concern ourselves so much with the future so that we're not faith as faithful as we ought to be today Let us not expect tomorrow's grace to be given to us today. No, expect today the grace that you need today for the challenges and the trials today. Because God is rich in grace and mercy so that He never runs out, so that each day you go to Him to withdraw from His grace, it's always there, and it's always available, and it never runs out. It's the reason why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 34, Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The third thing this draws our attention to is a satisfaction with the basics. The Lord promises to give the basics. And I don't think the daily bread necessarily means the basicness, like the physical, tangible necessities, but I think it would also include spiritual basics as well. To be giving the strength, the encouragement, or the grace that you need for the challenges that lie ahead in the day. The promise is that God will provide for the basics today. First Timothy six seven draws us to contentment. For we brought nothing into the world that we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It is the additional things, it is the things beyond the basics That can have harmful effects upon us. Not saying that they always do, but it's when we desire to have more than the basics, just to have them, when we idolize them, when we lust after them, it's when they can lead us into self-ruination and destruction. And I think it is the contentment with the basics that helps us to see satisfaction in Christ. When we trust in the Lord to provide for the basic needs that we need each and every day, it helps us more than anything to seek our satisfaction in Jesus Christ, who is generous to his people. So in a way, this prayer is a prayer that the Lord would keep us content The second petition is for forgiveness. Forgiveness for personal sins. There are two truths about sin that we have to understand according to the scriptures. One is that sin is canceled. Sin is canceled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Meaning that all of our sins have been taken care for. Because Jesus took all our sins upon himself and died on the cross and received the penalty for our sins there on the cross so that all those who believe in him are no longer liable to the judgment that their sins deserve. They've all been canceled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 6 tells us, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our iniquities are laid on the person of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. So sin is canceled, and yet we still confess our sins. Why do we continue to confess our sins, though every single one of our sins have been canceled? Because sin still affects relationship. It still affects relationship, even for those whose sins have been canceled. It's like a marriage covenant that's intended to be permanent till the day you die, Right, with the exception of very grievous sins such as adultery, where, there, where the severing of the covenant is permissible. But outside of that, covenant marriage is supposed to be permanent, a permanent union, so that even when there are sins and offenses that you commit towards one another, it's not a reason to immediately dissolve the marriage. But, it's, it's a, but it still remains intact, and yet there's something wrong something is between both parties, and that is sin, when there is an offense. And until the offense is dealt with, until it's acknowledged and admitted, and forgiveness is asked for, and there's a genuine desire to repent, it is like having two different magnets. You're trying to put them together, trying to make them touch, and it's virtually almost impossible, because they keep repelling one another. Sin has that kind of effect so that, yes, they're close, but they're not as close as they ought to be because there's sin in the middle. And so why do we confess and ask for forgiveness? Because even though we have permanent union with Jesus Christ, sin still affects relationships so that we are not as close in our walk with the Lord as we ought to be. And when we confess our sins before the Lord in sincerity, with a desire to repent of our sins, only then can we walk in much closer communion with Christ day by day. So we confess our sins before the Lord. This also concerns the sins of others. The prayer assumes that we go on to forgive others for their sins and their debts, their transgressions towards us. One of the most predominant fruits that forgiveness bears is forgiveness. Right? Forgiveness bears forgiveness. In fact, the scriptures make the case that unforgiveness is actually unchristian. Because a Christian cannot withhold from others what he has received so freely and so graciously from God. And I'm not saying it's always easy to forgive others. The question is are we working towards forgiving others their sins and offenses towards us? And we have to work towards that end. because we're called to imitate the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. The third petition concerning ourselves is a petition for protection and preservation. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That the word temptation here could either be temptation or testing, And it almost sounds like the Lord is the one who is leading us into temptation, but this is when we have to use Scripture to clarify Scripture. So we look to James chapter 1, verse 13, where it says there, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So then, what are we communicating here when we pray unto the Lord, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, or from the evil one? What we're asking for, what we're pleading for, is to be spared from the temptations that come as a result, or from, come from the process of testing. From the Scriptures, specifically the New Testament, we know that testing is actually a good thing. Right, we, don't always, we certainly don't ever desire to be tested, but tested is always intended to produce strength or some kind of virtue in the life of God's people. But sometimes, through the process of testing, there come temptations that we must never believe, that they come from the hand of God, but, it was also, but we must always remember that there is an enemy. There is always an evil one who may, always, who may try to turn the testing into a trial of temptation. And so we are asking the Lord, Lord, protect us from the evil one who might use this testing and turn it into a temptation. We don't want to be tempted towards evil. We don't want to be tempted to transgress your ways. We want to follow your will according to what you have written in your word. So keep us, preserve us, And there are certainly temptations when temptations must be faced head on. There's no escape. And in that hour, we pray that God would continue to keep us and protect us because we want nothing more than to follow the Lord. And there are times when we have a decision to either face the temptation head on or to flee. And you should flee. It's better to admit one's weakness and run from the temptation than to think you're strong enough to take it head on and then come to the painful realization that you are much weaker than you thought you were. We're praying that the Lord would preserve us and keep us from the designs of the evil one and keep us following in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake, as the prayer goes in Psalm 23. So those are the petitions concerning God, petitions concerning ourselves, in the Lord's Prayer. There's also a conclusion. We don't see it here. We pray it on Sunday mornings. The reason we don't see it here is because that conclusion, for, your, for, your, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. That conclusion is actually not in the original New Testament Greek manuscripts. So most likely that it's not considered to be the inspired holy word of God, and yet, quite honestly, I think, it's, I think it's totally fine to add that conclusion to our prayers because there's nothing inconsistent about it with the rest of Scripture. Because essentially, we are asking, God, glorify your name. Honor your name. Hollow your name. For your kingdom, the power, and your glory belong to you forever and ever. So now, lastly, let's consider the preface. It's short and simple. It says, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. Interesting that it begins with our, with that personal pronoun, which is Jesus, I think, assuming that God's people pray together, not necessarily praying this particular prayer together. But there's nothing wrong with that, but there is an assumption that God's people will come together and pray together. But it begins Our Father in heaven. And the other thing that's interesting is that, again, this is in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaching the crowds about the kingdom of heaven and what kingdom of heaven living is like. And he teaches them to pray like this, to address God as Father. Which in it, he shows such, a, such an incredibly deep affection for his people. Because with, even with our own children, there's not, we don't allow just anybody to call us as, as fathers, Father. But Jesus, being the eternally begotten Son of God, which means that God has always been eternally Father, Jesus invites us to address his Father as our Father. And establishes who we are addressing. He could have said, pray then like this, our God in heaven, our Lord in heaven, our King in heaven, the Sovereign One in heaven. No, instead he says, pray then like this, our Father. Who is in heaven? In heaven, I mean that alone might help might sort of make us feel like this God is distant. Heavens up there and earth is down here. That we're not as close as we ought to be. But the very title as Father communicates his closeness to those who pray to him. It teaches us that He is ever-present, ever-close, and ever-loving towards His children. In Matthew 5.44, it reveals something, something to us about the person of God. It says there, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. So we are called to imitate our Heavenly Father by loving our enemies and even praying for those who might persecute us. And in so doing, we reveal something about the nature of God, and that is that He is a loving Father. And how does He show His love as a Father? By loving His enemies. And who were once his enemies? You and I were once his enemies. Having had our backs turned to the Lord in our sins, in our uh, our waywardness, in our faithlessness. And this is love. Not Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us and sent his Son into the world to die for our sins, loving His enemies so that He might make them into sons and daughters. And so we are called to address Him as Father, consider Him as Father, and let us not for a moment think that this is an irreverent title. But no other title, I think, captures authority and respect and closeness, and honor, and intimacy, and reverence, and love. It's like the title of like a teacher, or a doctor, which communicates one's authority over another, and there's a respect for the person, and their title, and their position. But it's not like father, because in the title of teacher, or doctor, right, there isn't always, there isn't this, this personal relationship with the individual. Or even in Addressing someone as a friend, that communicates or can communicate a deep affection for the person, but you're still as considered as equals. But there is no other title, at least I'm convinced that captures well this combination of respect and deference and authority and at the same time closeness and intimacy. And love. So, with that being said, because we can address God as our Father who is in heaven, we can approach Him with all sincerity. The word sincere comes from two Latin words, sine, which means without, and sera, which means wax. In ancient times, People would put wax on their pottery to mask the defects in order to then be able to sell their merchandise at a higher price. But the more reputable sellers would put a wax, would put a sign over their merchandise that would say Sinesera, that is without wax, to show that their merchandise was actually genuine. We have a God who says in four in Hebrews 4:13 who who sees all, that all are exposed before him and that nothing is hidden from his sight. And yet there are times when we will try to stitch together a mask or a costume and paint and cover up our failures, our weaknesses, and even our sins. We feel like we have to be sort of presentable before we come before the presence of the Lord. And those are, in a a way, our efforts to try to measure up. We're being less than sincere. But the very fact that we are coming before the one who is in heaven as Father should encourage us. It should encourage us to approach Him without having to present something about ourselves that isn't actually true that we should be unafraid in presenting ourselves before the Lord, coming to the Lord just as we are. Even if we are in raggedy, torn, and beaten up and dirty rags, the Lord does not expect perfection before we approach His throne of grace. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear fear has to do with punishment. Whoever feared has not been perfected in love. Our Father in heaven is a loving God. As a loving God, there should be no fear as we go before him. It should encourage us to be sincere. We may be like Esther, who feared to approach the court of the king, feared for her life, but having found favor in his sight, the king extended his scepter inviting Esther to come into his presence because she has found favor in his sight. So in the same way, we might be afraid to approach the high king of heaven and feel like we have to present ourselves in a particular way in order to be invited into his presence, but we can come to him just as we are because he is a loving father if we come to him in sincerity, he will always extend his scepter and welcome us into his presence because we have found favor in his sight, not because of any good that we have done, but because Jesus Christ died for us. And he sees us, not as we see ourselves, but he sees us through the lens of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so he welcomes us and receives us And he asks us, What do you desire? And God's governance of the entire universe, and his governance over all human affairs, and his governance of his divine will over all things, what will capture his attention? Isaiah 66 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble. And contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. This is the one that God will always receive, the one that always has his ear, the one who always has his attention. Then whatever it is and all that God is doing, God is never too busy. To have his dear saints come as they are, approaching the throne of grace. To whom he is eager to extend the scepter and welcome them as his beloved children. So let us go to the Lord and let us pray. Whether in public, whether at the church, or whether in our private prayer rooms or closets. Let us go before the Lord and pray to the Lord in sincerity.